Our thoughts this morning are entitled, Love from a Biblical Perspective. Love from a Biblical Perspective. The irony of this, it may sound or seem like a Valentine's Day message two weeks removed. But over the past several months on our radio program, we've been studying through the book of 1 John on the radio, and it's been a verse-by-verse exposition of that. And if you've ever read the book of 1 John, you know that one of the main themes of John's first epistle is that of love. Brotherly love, love one towards another, where love comes from in our lives, and how we ought to put this type of self-sacrificing love that Scripture commends in practice in caring for those that are around us. And so we just consider it a little bit of irony as it comes to you just less than two solid weeks after Valentine's Day. You know that I'm not much of a themed preacher. Aside from Christmas and Easter, I do not let the holidays that America celebrates every three weeks, every three weeks, hijack our services. I think that a lot of that is due to American commercialism, but there are times when it is appropriate at Easter and Christmas, but this surely is a message that is appropriate each and every Sunday. As we introduce the concept of love today from a biblical perspective, there's a couple of things that I want to say in advance. First of all, I want you to know that I love you from the depths of my soul. I love you with all my heart. I love you, and on the back row today as I was watching you sing and worship and watching people come into the building and join in in worship, there were several times that I stopped and I smiled because I could see the love that you have one to another as everyone greeted one another and you smiled at one another and it wasn't fake, it wasn't pretend, but you legitimately, authentically love one another. And that's one thing that I can say about the church here at Flint River is that in the entire time that I've been here, our church has been a very loving church and our church is a loving church today. And I don't think that we can overemphasize how important it is for a congregation of people to love one another. Conversely, in Scripture, there are congregations that fell victim to things such as backbiting. And what Paul warns against when he would write about that is be careful lest you bite and devour one another. We can engage so carnally that we would even eat each other up when we're out of each other's presence. And you know, something that is devoured is gone, and it injures it. It tears it up. So I'm very thankful that Flint River is a loving group of people, and I'm very thankful for the love that you've shown us over the time that we have been here with you, attempting to serve you in the gospel ministry. As we are introducing the concept, it's very important, and we'll be very clear to point out that the Bible's depiction of love goes far beyond the sort of physical or romantic love that people focus on heavily today. And we're going to contrast what the Bible says about love with what the culture says about love and maybe define it in a different way than the culture would define it. Now, it's no surprise that we would do that. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. Christianity is fundamentally to be a counterculture. Whatever it is that the culture is doing, 
Usually, the church is to be doing the exact opposite of that. We are a counterculture. If the world says it's good to do something, then usually those things that the world says that it's good to do are not very good for you, and Scripture speaks against them, especially in our American culture today. The concept of love has been so redefined in America today to include all sorts of concupiscence and inordinate affection, things that Scripture condemns, and it all falls under the umbrella of supposed love, and it is not love at all. What it amounts to is lust. Scripture speaks about love from the perspective, as we'll see, of self-sacrificing and patience and kindness and compassion. It doesn't speak about love in the New Testament from the perspective of lust. Now, it's interesting to note that in the Greek language, the New Testament that we have our English Bibles translated from, there are a couple of different words that translate commonly into love. One of them refers to the agape love of Christ, the sacrificing love of Christ. There's another word that some linguists believe had reference more to a brotherly love. And then there was a word that was commonly used in the Greek language in the writings of the day of the first century in the New Testament that is the root for the English word erotic or eroticism. And that word never occurs in the New Testament when love is written off. What does that tell you? That when the Bible speaks about love, it has reference to something other than what the world around us defines love as being in our present day and age. That's not to say that anything is wrong with romance. Husbands, I hope that you were romantic to your wives on Valentine's Day. And if you were not, might I encourage you to make it up to them beginning today. I'll tell you how we were romantic on Valentine's Day. I spent all day working on revamping my wife's kitchen. Now that might not seem like romance to you, but to Rachel Winslet, that's romantic. I hung trim and I worked on all the things that she made me do. And she was a very happy woman on Valentine's Day. And to me, that was, that was winning over her heart and her affection. It's fine to be romantic. Song of Solomon speaks very, very deeply about the love and compassion that a husband and a wife ought to have for one another. There are many theologians who believe that to be a picture of Christ and his church, but before it was a picture of Christ and his church, it was literally a collection of love letters between a man and a woman. That is certainly appropriate. God gifted us with marriage, and God gifted us with affection. And once you are married, once you are married, affection is an appropriate, encouraged thing between a husband and a wife. But what we're talking about today goes so much beyond, so far beyond some sort of a physical affection or romantic affection. As we're speaking about... And thinking about love, still laying some groundwork for what we want to talk about today, turn to the book of 1 John chapter 4 and verse 9. As we think about what the Bible presents to us as the love that we ought to have, every one of us, one for another, I want to notice the great example of love, the greatest example of love in human history, 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, in this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, 
And there's a whole hour of preaching in that verse. And I hope that last week's message touched on some of those principles. When we were yet at enmity with God, God sent His Son into the world to die for us. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means appeasement. It means atonement, and sometimes this English word translates from a word that literally means mercy seat, which, as you know, was the top to the Ark of the Covenant with the two angels, the two cherubims, rather, outstretching their arms over the top. And it was the mercy seat upon which God appeared and revealed himself in the holiest of holies in the temple and in the tabernacle to the high priest as he would be going about his work. Jesus is our mercy seat. He is our propitiation. What is God's ultimate example of love for those that he loves? The ultimate example is that he sent his only begotten son into the world to die for people who did not love him naturally, did not seek him naturally, did not fear him naturally, did not understand him naturally. Romans chapter 3. But God sent His Son into the world to die for people who were His enemies. That is the example of love that God has set for us. And so from that we see that biblical love is selfless. Biblical love is self-sacrificing. God loved us so much, He gave. Think about the words in John chapter 3 and verse 16, one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible. There's one little two-letter word in that verse that is so powerful. And I just used it in that phrase. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And child of God, the faith that you have in, your, in His Son declares that you are a born-again person. You are a person that He loves. We love Him. Why? Because He first loved us. As we read in 1 John 4, 19. The love that God displays for us, that He depicts for us, is epitomized by the offering of Jesus Christ upon the cross of Calvary. We just spoke on the justifying work of the Son of God, the second Adam, the last Adam, that He gave Himself for us upon the cross. He took all of our iniquity upon Him, though He had no iniquity. The love that Scripture presents, that is to be the love that flows from breast to breast, as we poetically sang in I believe one of the hymns that we sang this morning is a love that would even take the iniquities to bear the iniquities of another upon yourself because you value them more than you value yourself. This is a selfless, self-sacrificing love, a love that glorifies God, a love that was depicted by our Savior Jesus upon the cross. And as we read in his preaching, greater love hath no man than this, then a man lay down his life for his friends. I'm not sure if you've ever been to the Memorial Park downtown. It's a nice, beautiful, more recently built park in Huntsville. I've had the privilege of playing several concerts there for Veterans Day and Memorial Day. It's an outside park, and there's a half circle. And around this half circle, inside of it is a fountain and Around it are several monuments depicting soldiers carrying their brothers-in-arms off the battlefield. But around it you have a timeline of all the American wars and all the casualties from every American war. And it adds up to the millions who have given their lives. 
on the right side, the east side of that monument, there's one quote, and there are quotes surrounding the place, but there's one quote without the author attributed. There's no attribution there of the author, and the quote is what I simply just quoted to you from the Lord Jesus. Greater love hath no man than this, than that a man lay down his life for his friends. It's so sad to me that when I see that monument, the one quote they can't attribute is the one by the Lord Jesus Christ, who depicted the greatest love that man has ever known. The greatest love that man has ever known. Christ on the cross epitomizes love. As we think about love as a divine attribute, as we're here in 1 John, before we begin looking at love from person to person, notice the last phrase in verse 8. And we'll come back to this verse. He that loveth not knoweth not God. In other words, if a person is void of love, they're not born again. Because God is love, and if God is in you, then love is in you. On some level, love is within you. But notice this phrase, God is love. God is love. Because I have to. Let me speak a couple of minutes and clarify what this verse means. Sometimes people take the phrase, God is love, to mean that since God is love, anything goes. Because after all, if you love someone, you just let them do whatever it is that they want to do. Is this what Scripture presents? No, it isn't. God is love, but a loving parent chastens his children. In fact, in the book of Proverbs, we read that if a man chastens not his children, what does he do to them? We hear spare the rod and what the child in America? Spoil. But did you know the Proverbs doesn't say spoil? It says hate. To forego chastening on your child is the equivalent of hating them because you set them up for a life of failure. So we learn from that that love sometimes involves chastening. That means anything doesn't go. Now here's some other clarifications. God is a God of holiness. God loves holiness. God is love, but part of what God loves is holiness. God loves righteousness. According to the Psalms, God despises sin so that he despises, hates the workers of iniquity. See, hatred is a divine attribute as well. There are things in the world that God hates, and Scripture lists some of them out for us. The book of Proverbs speaks about seven things that God hates that are abomination unto him. Proud look, lying tongue, heart that deviseth mischief. The list goes on and on. There are things that God hates. To say God is love doesn't mean that God loves everything, but it means that God is love. You see the difference there? It's an important distinction to make. God loves justice. How do you know that? Because God hates injustice. God hates injustice. God loves justice. God loves judgment. 
because he is the judge of the quick and the dead. We need to be clear with our thinking. A common phrase in today's time is love is love. I hesitate to mention this, but I'll do it anyway. Recently, there was a song that was passed out in one of the groups that one of my children performs in, and the title of the song was Love is Love, and it was written to support lifestyles that the Bible would condemn. And I sent an email to the director who politely removed that from the lineup. I don't think she realized what that meant. It was a very common slogan for a lifestyle that the Bible condemns. Now, do we want to love people that do things the Bible condemns? Yes. But does that mean that we agree with the things that the Bible condemns? No. No, we don't, we don't agree with things that the Bible condemns. But just think about that phrase for a moment. Love is love. What that does is equate any type of affection. There are types of what some people would call affection in the country, in the world today, that are illegal. A child molester will say love is love. Is that love valid? No, it isn't. It is evil. It is wicked. And if our government was a just government, they would deal harshly with those who abuse and prey on children. Love is not love unless you define it as the Bible defines it, which places it within parameters. That phrase is simply not true. There are such things as inordinate affection. Inordinate affection. Scripture speaks about it. What does that mean? It is an affection that is forbidden. You read the law of God in the Old Testament, there are plenty of types of affections that are forbidden. And we won't labor that point before you today. There's also such a thing in the Bible as concupiscence. How many of you said today, child, be careful. Be careful of concupiscence. Huh? It simply means forbidden desires. There are things that people love that are forbidden. And remember that God sends His Son into the world, not that we love God, but that God loved us. We're all sinners and we're all guilty. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. So it's not a, we are better than anyone else, but there are things that the Bible condemns and we respect, we bow the knee to the Lordship of Christ when it comes to things that the Bible forbids. So as we think about love, God is love. We are commanded to be loving. 1 John 4 says a lot about that. What I want to do is look at the command to love. We are commanded to love. Love is not optional. Love is not something that we can decide to do. You know, today I think I'm going to be a loving person. We are commanded to love. And I want to take just a brief survey of a few different passages of Scripture that speak about Love as a command. First of all, I'm going to speak to you husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. This is Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25. Even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Husbands, love your wives the way the Lord Jesus loved his church and gave himself for it. What did the Lord Jesus do for you? 
He gave himself for you upon the cross of Calvary. He took all of your putrid, wretched sinfulness upon himself upon the cross. He bore your iniquities upon the cross and he died under the wrath of God and the wrath of man for you. That is the picture of love for a husband and his wife. He was faithful. He cared. He gave himself. And this goes so much beyond that. Oh, he provided. But think about the great liberty that Jesus gives us in our lives. Does Jesus micromanage what you do and control what you do? Is Jesus vindictive to you when your choices are different, if they are reasonable and right? No. Jesus is kind and loving. And if it isn't sinful, if it isn't sinful, he even gives you liberty in him to do that which is your heart's desire to do. And so if you want to go play in a band or you want to go to a sacred harp singing or you want to go hunting or bowling or fishing or to a race or you want to work out or you want to jog, what it is that makes you happy as long as it's moral, he blesses you to do because he loves you. Because he loves you. Jesus loves you. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. If you want to see the great depiction of being a godly husband, look at the way Jesus interacted with his children in the New Testament. Sometimes they come to him weeping over their sins and washing his feet with their tears and every time he loves them. Sometimes they're brought to him by angry groups of men carrying stones, wanting to stone them. And Jesus responds, let he that is without sin cast the first stone. He says, where are thine accusers? There are none, Lord. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Jesus is always, not of their behavior, but of them accepting. No matter what they had done, he accepts them. You see, he came into this world that we would be what? Ephesians 1. Through the blood of Christ made accepted in the Beloved. The Jesus who came into the world to die for their sins loved them so much that when they were caught in their sins, he accepts them into his presence and he loves them because he's loved them with an everlasting love. That's the love husbands were to have for our wives. And this goes on to describe it. I'm not going to labor the point because I could spend the rest of the message there. Let every one of you so love his wife even as himself. And the wife see that she reverence her husband. Husbands are to love their wives. Titus chapter 2, you sisters, if I could speak to you for a moment. Titus 2 speaks of counsel to and gives counsel to aged women and young women, aged men and young men, servants and masters. Every type of person in the church finds instruction in Titus chapter 2. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may, may be able to teach the young women to be sober, 
Now, this doesn't mean that we have a Bible study where an older woman speaks to younger women. This is to be done in day-by-day interaction. You learn a whole lot more being with an older wife and an older mother and watching her example than you do hearing a lecture at a conference about how to be a better mother. I compare college classes on land surveying to working beside a land surveyor for eight years. And I'll tell you that there's a whole lot more to be learned when you spend every day with a licensed land surveyor than you would learn in a classroom listening to a guy talk about land surveying. It's called on-the-job training. You learn a whole lot more on the job than you do in the classroom. Now, this is the classroom. Welcome to class. The bell will ring at 12.05. But you'll learn a lot more than you will ever learn from me by being around younger women, being around older women who have lived through the mistakes of this life, if they be a wise woman. Every wise woman buildeth her house. There are some that you would not want to take advice from. And so I warn you, age does not mean someone is right. But if it is an aged, wise woman, then you draw nigh unto her, learn from her, receive wisdom and counsel from her. Aged woman, teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children. Younger women, I want to encourage you to love your husband. To love your husband and to love your children. It's always so heartbreaking to see a mother who does not love her children. How heartbreaking is that? Young women, love your children. They drive you crazy. Amen? Oh, they make messes. They make messes. They destroy things. But we love them. We're commanded to love them. To bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We want to love our spouse. We want to love our children. We're commanded. We're commanded to love brothers and sisters in Christ. John chapter 13. This verse has weighed heavily on my mind for a number of weeks. John 13, verse 34 and 35, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, even as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. In other words, the way that Jesus loves us, that's the way we are to love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. That is convicting to me. Jesus doesn't say... By your doctrinal orthodoxy, all men will know that you're my disciples. That's sometimes how we approach things, isn't it? We might look at someone who's doctrinally unorthodox. And I don't mean some sort of a heretic that goes around teaching outright damnable heresies. But we look at someone whose doctrine isn't quite right. We look down on them. We think negatively of them. Think about this for a minute. Jesus does not say... By doctrinal orthodoxy and purity of practice, do all men know that you're my disciples? How do they know that you're his disciples? When you love one another. In many points of doctrine, the Pharisees were orthodox. Does that scare you? 
In many points of doctrine, the Pharisees were orthodox. The Sadducees were unorthodox. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees were far more orthodox. Sometimes Christ, sometimes Paul, would use the orthodoxy of the Pharisee and the unorthodoxy of the Sadducee to pit them against each other. And Paul does this that he might find a way of escape. In other words, if you've got two groups of people accusing you and you get them arguing, you can sneak away. And Paul would do this in the book of Acts. Pharisees were orthodox, and yet they were a generation of vipers, most of them. Jesus doesn't say through doctrinal orthodoxy, all men will know that you're my disciples, but because you love one another, all men will know you're my disciples. That's so convicting. As we attempt to maintain biblical orthodoxy as it was in the first century in terms of both doctrine and practice, what sets us apart as followers of Christ from the world before anything else is the fact that we love one another. And what sort of love is this? Well, what sort of love did Jesus have? One that would even bear the iniquities of others upon himself to look aside from all of that, to go to the cross and to actually pay the debt. Propitiation, appeasement of wrath, atonement, reconciliation. To take another's iniquity and to suffer for their iniquity so they themselves will not have to suffer. That's the example. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one to another. In 1 John, John would refer to this several times. A new commandment have I written unto you that is not a new. And he would, he would call it an old commandment that's a new commandment. And we find this commandment in the law, but it was given to us again in Christ. And there were some new details added to it as Christ presents this to us in his gospels. In the gospel accounts, I should say. It is an old commandment that is a new commandment that we love one another. Now here's where it gets really hard. It's easy to love your wife, especially when things are going well. It's easy to love your husband, sisters, when everything's going well. It's easy to love brothers and sisters in the church when we all agree. Let me show you where it gets difficult. Turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Matthew 5, 43. I'll give you time to get there. You have heard that it hath been said... Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Sometimes Jesus would ask the question, who is my, or be asked the question, who is my neighbor? Because he would say you should love your neighbor, and then people say, well, who's my neighbor? In other words, give me the list. I want to know who I have to love, and if I don't have to love them, I'm not going to. When we act that way and think that way, the phrase that Jesus would share with us is, you know not what spirit you're of. You know not what spirit you're of. There was a time when there were people that came to Jesus and it displeased the disciples, the mentality that they had. So John, I believe it was the disciple of love, ironically, asks, will you, will you let us call down fire on them from heaven? That's what Elijah did. You want to go out and call fire down from heaven on these people? We don't like them. Wouldn't that be something? If I had the ability through the Holy Spirit to call down fire from heaven, somebody bothers me, pfft, gone. We should all breathe a sigh of relief that none of us have that power. 
And Jesus responds, you know not what manner of spirit ye are of. Jesus didn't come to destroy lives, but to save them. He came to save, not to destroy. You've heard that it hath been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Love my enemies? I don't want to love my enemies. Sometimes we love hating our enemies. There's a carnal satisfaction in thinking negative things about the people we don't like. Whether they be celebrities, political figures, rivals in our industry, people that bother us at work, your boss. Disgruntled family members, people that live in your neighborhood, whoever. I say unto you, love your enemies. We're commanded not only to love our wives or husbands or brothers and sisters in Christ, but we are even commanded to love our enemies. Now, I heard uh, Elder say this about 20 years ago, 25 years ago. He was preaching on marriage, and he shared a story of his counseling with a couple that was going through great difficulty in their marriage, and the point that they made was, I just can't love them anymore. And he said, well, you're even supposed to love your enemies, so why don't you start there? If you're to love your enemies, then I think we can find... We can find room to love those that are not our enemies. This is a great spiritual discipline. Do good to them or bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. And I don't believe when he says pray for them, he means that you should pray as the, the psalmist would sometimes pray, Lord, break his teeth. There have been a few times I've prayed that. That is one of the Psalms. And that there is a purpose in the world for praying that God would break the teeth of those who were God's enemies. But not our enemies. God give him repentance. God change him. God help him. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Now notice that bless them that curse you. There have been two or three times in my adult life when God has enabled me to do that. And I'm talking about somebody screaming in my face, screaming in my face, finger pointed. And the good Lord is my witness and sometimes my wife too. I will simply say, God bless you. Now, if it's a soft-hearted person who's just angry, because we all get angry, while we all have the nature of the flesh, who's screaming at you and you say that, it has a way of calming and diffusing the situation. But if it's a person that's just hardened or unregenerate and outright given over to their anger, it makes them so angry when they scream in your face and you respond with, God bless you. Bless them that curse you. Now, verse 45, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. We know that this is not how we're born again. John 3, 8, the wind bloweth where it listeth, thou hearest the sound thereof, canst not tell whence it cometh, whither it goeth, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. 
We're not born again through being nice to people. What Jesus means here is that we appear to be, we act as the children of our Father which is in heaven because, because that is the way He acts to us. Or as we read in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called, they shall be called the sons of God. We become as the children of God. We act like Him. We manifest the fact that we belong to Him when we act this way. For He maketh His sun to rise on the evil and the good. God calls the sun to rise, as it were, this morning in Huntsville, Alabama. And in this town, there are people that love Jesus, and there are people in this town who hate Jesus. And He calls the same sun to rise on them all. Notice this, we think a lot about this verse, I'm sure, in North Alabama right now. He sendeth his rain on the just and on the unjust. Whichever one of you prayed for rain, the, the old meme I saw a couple of weeks ago, whoever it was that prayed for rain, pray for my bank account. Because it has been blessed abundantly, our cup runneth over, and our rivers, and our lakes, and our creeks, and our streams. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. You think about it, we owe every heartbeat, every breath we take to God, the Father of lights, who sends every good and perfect gift from heaven, every breath. Fathom this for a moment. The air in the lungs of the atheist who curses God and denies his existence, the air was a gift to that individual from God. The heartbeat that enabled their brain to process their wicked rebellion is provided by a faithful creator. And they use the very gifts that God has given them in a physical way in the creation to curse him. He makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the just and the unjust because he is a faithful creator. There will be seed time and harvest until the world ends. Because God is faithful. Because God is faithful. When we are good to those who hate us, when we love those who are our enemies, we literally act as God does to the unjust each and every day. And we are His children in a very manifest sense. We manifest the fact that we belong to Him when we act like Him. A lot of times in our home, my wife will say to the children... In, in times past that they are acting like their father. Unfortunately, this is not always in a very positive context. But this is in a positive context. Now, Jesus asked the question, if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same? And when he says love here, he doesn't have reference to the type of love that we're talking about. We're learning here more of a fraternal affection. Fraternal affection. We have fraternities in the world. Even secret orders do things to uphold and promote their own. We're not learning about the mere fraternal affection that men have one to another. We're learning about a love that even cares for those who despise you. Those who can do nothing to pay you back. Nothing to help you. If you love them that love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same? If you salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? 
In other words, we shouldn't simply be loving to those that agree with us. We should be loving to those who don't agree with us, even those who are our enemies. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now this is convicting to me as it is to you, and it's been convicting to me for the days of the week this week that I have read this and meditated upon this. You see that this discipline will never end in our lives. Something that we have to work at each and every day of our lives seeking repentance and grace to grow. Now just briefly, I want to speak about the origin of this type of love before ending with what it looks like. What does this love look like in a more detailed sense? First of all, the origin of love, and I mean the agape love, the sacrificing love of Jesus, comes from the new birth. Let us love one another, 1 John 4, 7, for love is of God. The word of is genitive. It means it comes from God. Love is of God. If you have love in your heart, it is because God lives in your heart. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Every single person who loves is born of God and knows God. You mean to tell me that not every human being has the ability to love the way we're learning of love today? That is exactly what I mean. Titus chapter 3 says that we come into this world hateful and hating one another. Humanism is a great error. We are not generally good. Without Christ in the world, we are totally depraved. Hateful, hating one another. The love that He commends to us here is of God. It takes the new birth to love in this biblical sense of the word. Again, we're not speaking of lust, and we're not even speaking of some sort of a fraternal affection where I'm happy with you and do nice things for you if you agree with me and do nice things for me. But we're learning about the love that is epitomized by Jesus upon the cross. That love. Every single person with this love in their heart in the world is born of the Spirit of God and knows God and their knowledge of God is eternal life, according to John chapter 17. 1 Thessalonians 4. I'm going to hit these and move quickly because there's a lot that I want to say about the next part. And we don't have a lot of time. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. As touching brotherly love, you need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. God, before I can teach you about love, has already taught you to love one another. God has taught you to love one another. Where is brotherly love sourced? Where is its root? What causes it in your heart? The new birth. God does teach you at the moment of salvation. Romans chapter 5 speaks about the things that are worked by tribulation. It worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God, and this is a love for God, of God, is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. 
And then, what do we read in verse 6? This is a passage from last week. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. The love that we have for Christ and for one another has been shed abroad in our heart. It is caused in us by the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is within you, love is within you. If love is within you, then the Holy Spirit is within you. Where God is, love is. Because God is love. You can't separate the two. There are concepts in the Bible that are mutually exclusive, meaning where one is, the other is not. Light and darkness. Light and darkness. Righteousness and wickedness. Grace and works. But there are also concepts in the Bible that are so connected that what God has joined together, let no man divide. Such it is with God and with love. Where love is, God is. Where God is, love is. You cannot separate the two. Finally today, what does this love look like? And so for this, we want to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is referred to as the love chapter of the Bible, and the KJV translates it with a different word than love. And we'll speak to you a little about the nuance there. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, agape, love. Translates charity, I believe, because when the 1680, or excuse me, 1611 translators, you know, when you argue with people all week, you say things like 1689 and 1644. Anyway, the 1611 translators translate this into our own language. They chose the word charity rather than the word love. However, this word charity comes from agape or agapeo, which is a word that commonly translates love in many of the passages that we've already read today. Why then do they use the word charity? Because it focuses in on one attribute of biblical love that we need to understand. At the time of the translation of the KJV in 1611, this word charity meant the disposition to judge hopefully of another's intents and actions and to make allowances for their shortcomings. And that definition I've memorized from the Oxford English Dictionary of Historical Principles. When they translated this, charity meant, whereas love had many definitions, charity meant this disposition to judge hopefully of another's intents and actions. In other words, when you see someone do something, you judge hopeful of their intents. You don't automatically assume the worst. But on the flip side of that coin, you make allowances for their shortcomings. That means that rather than when you do find them to be deficient or in a fault, you make allowances for their shortcomings. You judge hopeful of their intent. You make allowances for their shortcomings. That is biblical love, which is why I believe the KJV translators chose the word charity because it zooms in, it focuses on that attribute of love. And it gives us a way to understand the, if you will, nuances of the word as it applies to this chapter. Paul gives us four great examples of spiritual gifts that we consider to be very impressive. How many Christians today are impressed with preachers? 
It's easy to be impressed with preachers. And we can act like we're not, but we are. Because we all have our favorite preachers. If you hang around here long enough, you won't be very impressed with me. But we're impressed with preachers. Being a preacher is one of these gifts. And many of the things that Paul writes about here are primarily the behaviors and works of a preacher. We are impressed with those that we see do certain things in the church. Though I speak, what does a preacher do? He speaks with the tongues of men and of angels. And this is not to stand up and make up gibberish. This is to literally speak and preach the gospel with languages of men, Spanish, English, German, Hindi. I can speak with the tongues of men and of angels even. The very language that God uses to speak with the angels. And have not charity. This great love that we're exhorted to. I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Loud noisemakers. As I was studying for this this week, I read of several different occurrences of and uses of these sounding brass and tinkling cymbals and Paul's day, suffice it to say, both the word sounding and the word tinkling symbol come from words that imply much loud noise. Yesterday I had a different type of sounding brass, but I had the experience of playing trumpet for a couple of hours for a musical group in Huntsville, and there was much sounding brass, whether you want to talk about it from the perspective of a wind instrument or the the drummer and all of the symbols that he surrounds his instrument with. But there's a great difference in making a noise on a banging cymbal and preaching the gospel. And yet, if I have no love for you, or the gospel, or the God who gave it, I'm just a noisemaker. I'm no different than someone takes a mallet and bangs on a gong. I'm just making noise. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and have all knowledge. I could be a prophet who could speak with definitive clarity as to future events. I'm sure that was impressive in the first century. Men stand up and speak and they foretell things that are about to occur in the world and they come to pass. That's impressive. And we're impressed by it. And yet, if I do all of that... And have not charity. I'm nothing. I'm a nobody. Another one. If I have all faith so that I could remove mountains. This hails back to Jesus' answer on. Lord increase our faith. Lord give us faith. And he says if you had but the faith of a grain of mustard seed. You could say to a mountain. Be moved over there. And the mountain would be moved. If I had enough faith to move Montesano, and yet I have not charity, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, our fourth is another very impressive, impressive act of Christianity. How could you bestow all your goods to feed the poor without this sort of love. Sometimes people do that for a show. They do it to show off. Or perhaps merely for the tax advantage. 
if I do it and I don't love them, profiteth me nothing. If, even if my body is burned, if I die as a martyr, if I have charity, it profits me nothing. It's good for nothing. Listen as we read the biblical definition of charity, the love that we're talking about this morning, that we exhort you all to in your homes, in our church, even to our enemies. Hopefully those aren't in our home. Hopefully those aren't in our church. If you have a two-year-old, though, maybe. Charity suffereth long. Long-suffering is what we see biblically when we use the word today, patience. We say, I'm a very patient person. Biblically, patience meant to endure persecution. This has reference to enduring things that we don't like to endure. Behavior of others, the attitudes of others. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity is kind. Sometimes we can be unkind, but charity is kind. Charity envieth not. There's no jealousy in Christian love. I thought recently about the passage from Romans chapter 12, to rejoice with them that rejoice and weep with them that weep. As Christians, we're to celebrate the victories of others, if they be wholesome, and we're to mourn the losses of others when they experience the loss of others. But charity isn't jealous. Let me just say, and this is something that I think affects our young people, so, so give me a couple of minutes for a tangent. Be satisfied as the you that God made. You don't have to be somebody else. Be you. God made you. God loves you. You are fearfully and wondrously made. Be happy be satisfied. Find satisfaction in Christ and in your identity in Christ. Charity envieth not. It vaunteth not itself. It doesn't exalt itself. It is not puffed up. That means to be arrogant and proud. Charity, loving nature, is not to be arrogant. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own. Is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. If we could control our imaginations and the things that we think happen, we'd do a whole lot better in the world. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth. There are things in the world that do fail. Let me skip down to verse 13. The spiritual gift that endures for all of eternity is agape love. Faith will come to an end when we see Him face to face. Hope will come to an end, faith, hope, and charity. Hope will come to an end when we have the object of our hope. We will know yet or no longer hope for something because we have it. And yet charity is the greatest of all of the spiritual gifts because of all the things that we're gifted with here to serve Jesus in the church, 
This love and action that we read about in 1 Corinthians 13 is the one that endures for all of eternity. May we not wait for eternity to live and walk in that charity, but may we obey the commands of Christ to love our husbands, our wives, our children, our brothers, our fellow man, our neighbor, and even our enemies. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, as we pray to you today, we confess that we come so short, so very short of this command. We know, Lord, that if this sort of love, the self-sacrificing love that puts everyone else and their needs and desires above our own, if this was something that everyone who knew you would put into practice in their life, that the world would be so much of a better place. And we know, Lord, that that's why the church is to be a little heaven on earth, because it's the one place that we can go in this world that you gave us, that you gifted us, where that little glimpse into glory can be experienced by us. Lord, we pray that we would be a loving people here. We thank you for the great love that this congregation has for one another. Lord, we know that we often focus on those impressive gifts of moving mountains and preaching and speaking in the various languages of this world, your gospel, and how impressed we are and enamored we are by that, Father. But the greatest of all of those that you gave us is simply to be loving. And so we know that it's better if we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's more impressive to you if we act like your son and love those that worship with us and even our enemies than if we were to build empires in your name. Help us, Father, so therein to walk. Forgive us, Lord, of our many sins. We pray in Jesus' name and amen.